truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. Good morning. Looks like it's going to be hot again today. For the next period, uh, I want to lecture about uh, our Zen ancestors and the story and stories of our Zen ancestors. Uh, and I think we will all together find a way to to connect that to our lives and to what's going on in our world. But just to remind ourselves that in our tradition there are deep wellsprings of wisdom and practice that are, uh, you know, even if some of them go back two and a half millennia, they're still alive for us. And our teachers, uh, Sojin Roshi, Suzuki Roshi, and others, were constantly bringing these forward to our attention. So that said, I want to acknowledge that just that I recognize that there's a terrible battle going on in uh, Israel and Palestine right now uh, with uh, massive exchanges of weapons, missiles. Uh, so far, there have been uh, at least 300 deaths on both sides, and uh, I suspect that that's a, an underestimate. So I just, I'm not going to speak of that in, in detail, um, but I hold that, that's in my awareness of what's, uh, at least what I'm carrying with me into this room and trying to understand how uh, these wellsprings of wisdom can serve us in the face of uh, many terrible things happening in the world. So I'm sorry um, to To have to lay that in front of you, but it really is in front of all of us. Nevertheless, what I wanted to speak about tonight, today, is about our ancestor uh, Banke Yotaku, uh, who some of you, we haven't studied him for a long time, I I think we did some study with Sojin talked about him from time to time. And uh, what was refreshing to me, so um, three weeks ago, uh, I went with 
my son Genpo to uh, do a several day session with his teacher and uh, someone who's been a long time teacher to me, Shoto Harada Roshi in LA. And in uh, his, his excellent Teishos, although since I wish I knew them, I wish I understood them better, he, he teaches in Japanese and it's often like, he'll speak for like 20 minutes and then the translation will be like three. <laughs> you know you're missing something. <laughs> um, but just his, his presence is an awakening force. Anyway, he spoke about Bange uh, in one of his Teishos, and uh, it really resonated with me, and so I want to talk about that today. Uh, first to tell a story from Bange, and then a little more into the details of his, his teaching his teaching of the unborn, or his teaching of original mind. Uh, and there are a couple of books uh, that collect his record. Uh, one, uh, I think it's called The Unborn, uh, uh, translated by Norman Waddell. And there's another of this, pretty much the same record, by, uh, translated by Peter Haskell. And they're, they're both quite good, and you can get them. So, in the record, Bonke tells this story. Two men are walking towards the city of Takamatsu. One is a good man, and the other an evil man. Though, of course, neither of them is conscious of that. As they walk on, engaged in conversation on a variety of subjects, if something occurs along the road, they will see it. And though they have no thought to do so, they will see it though they have no thought to do so. The things they come upon appear equally to the eyes of the good man and the evil man. If a horse or a cow approaches them from the opposite direction, both men will step aside to let it pass. They step aside even if they are conversing at the time, despite the fact that neither man has made up his mind beforehand to do so. If there is a ditch they must jump over, they both jump over it. When they come to a stream, they both ford it. You might suspect that the good man would step aside to let the horse or cow pass without prior reflection, whereas the evil man would not be able to do so as readily, that there is some, that is, without some deliberation. But the fact is, there isn't the slightest difference between them in performing this act. It shows that the unborn Buddha mind is found equally in the good person and the evil person. So, Bankei Yurkaku uh, lived from uh, 
1622 to 1693 in the Tokugawa period, which was a a period of wars and battles and instability in Japan. And he was uh, he was a Rinzai Zen master and the founding abbot of, of two temples in Japan. And he's best known for this teaching of the the unborn or what, what I would call I, I find the term unborn Somehow, it confuses me somewhat. So I like to use term another term he uses, which is original mind. Uh, so as a child, Banke was uh, rebellious and mischievous. Uh, although he was really sharp and intelligent. When he was 11, his father died, and that year he entered school. And in school, what they were studying, I mean, was, this was a relatively elite upper-class school, and so they were studying Confucian texts. And he found these Confucian texts really confusing. And one day, the teacher read him the first line from uh, a text called uh, Great Learning. And the line was, the way of great learning lies in clarifying right virtue. Clarifying right virtue. And Vanke didn't understand what that meant. And he got in an argument with his teacher. Uh, trying to argue his teacher into explaining this thing. Uh, but he didn't get any satisfactory answer. Uh, and uh, shortly after, he was kicked out of the school because he was a troublemaker. It's good to be a troublemaker. Uh, so, this gap in his understanding really, uh, really bothered him. And he would ask Confucian and Buddhist scholars that he encountered, uh, and nothing, none of them could really answer him. Uh, when he got kicked out of school, a relative gave him a small hut to living. It's as if he's like 12 years old. Uh, and he wrote on a slab of wood outside the hut, he said, practice hermitage. So he was determined to practice. Uh, he took up Shin Buddhism, Pure Buddhism. Uh, and at the age of 15, he also studied Shingon Buddhism, which is esoteric Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, uh, and did some uh, sutra study. But he wasn't really happy with any of these approaches. Uh, at 16, he 
he went on pilgrimage and met uh, Umpo Zenjo at Suyoji. Uh, and Umpo said uh, that the only way he was going to get to the bottom of this question about bright clarity was to practice sasa. And he, uh, he ordained under Umpo and received the Buddhist name Yotaku, meaning long polishing of the mind gem. At 19, he kept on with his pilgrimage, and he did this for years. He would stay at temples, or sleep in the wilderness, or under bridges, just scrounging for food as a beggar. So he returned to Suyoshi and he picked up his practices, uh, and then he left and he picked up his practice as a hermit. Uh, and he decided, you know, like the Buddha decided, you know, that at a certain point he was just going to sit there until either he woke up or he died. And he did that. Uh, and eventually the bodily neglect, and this, this goes back to, if you think about it, maybe you've seen some of these images of uh, the Buddha before his uh, last effort for enlightenment, uh, he practiced all these austerities and, you know, reduced his diet to two grains of rice a day. And there are these images of this uh, skeletal Buddha. I've seen them, I have photos in, from Thailand, just like wasting away to nothing, uh, thinking that this self-denial was going to get him there, which it didn't. Uh, and finally, he takes up the middle way. Bhante had to get there. So, um, eventually, this, his neglect, uh, he wound up with tuberculosis, and the doctor said that he was going to die. And one day during this uh, near-death period, he had this experience, and he writes about, I felt a strange sensation in my throat. I spat against the wall, a mass of black phlegm large as a soapberry, soapberries could be like an inch or an inch and a half uh, large, a mass of phlegm large as a soapberry rolled down the side of the wall. Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, just at that moment, I realized what it was that had escaped me. All things are perfectly resolved in the unborn. Following this breakthrough, his doubt and questioning ceased while his physical condition improved. Uh, and once he was strong enough, he went back to Umpo at Tsuyoji to relate his experience and he was, his enlightenment was confirmed. So 
Um, this is the difficult path that he took. And it was different than, than other practice modalities that were, that were on offer, particularly in the Rinzai tradition. Um, he did not practice koans. In fact, he, he really argued against them. Uh, he didn't talk about getting to a, a great, you know, this wall of doubt and having to break through it, which is really the way that practice is configured in the, in the Rinzai tradition. He just spoke of this unborn Buddha mind, this original mind. So I want to, he says, it's right here. And all of us have it. And you may not know it. But I want to read you what he says in his record because it's it's really accept, it's really accessible. Banke addressed the assembly. Among all of you people here today, there's not a single one who's an unenlightened being. Everyone here is a Buddha. This is talking to you. This is not talking to uh, just this community 500 years ago in Japan. This is true now. So listen carefully. What you have, what you all have from your parents innately is the unborn Buddha mind alone. There's nothing else that you have innately. This Buddha mind you have from your parents innately is truly unborn and marvelously illuminating. So it's marvelously illuminating. This is the this is the great illumination, which was the the quandary that he was in uh, as he was trying to understand these old Confucian texts. The actual proof of this unborn which manages perfectly everything is that as you're all listening to me talk, if out back someone is hammering or a dog barks or this calling of crows, chirping of sparrows, rustling of the wind, sound buzzing of the air purifier. Even though you're not deliberately trying to hear each of these sounds, you hear them and you make no mistake about them. This is the proof of this original mind. So when you understand this and recognize the marvelous functioning, the fluidity of our mind, that is the manifestation. That's being a living Tathagata. 
writes, while you're all turned this way listening to me talk, you don't mistake the chirp of the sparrow out back for the call of the crow, the sound of a gong for that of a drum. You don't mistake the sound of a hammer for the sound of a electric saw. A man's voice for a woman's voice, an adult voice for a child. You clearly recognize and distinguish each sound you hear without making any mistake. That's the marvelously illuminating dynamic function. I doubt there's anyone among the people here who'd say, I heard what I did because I was deliberately trying to hear it. If anyone says he did, he's a liar. Wondering what's Banke telling us? What's Hosan telling us? All of you are turned this way, intent only on hearing what I'm saying. No one's trying deliberately to hear the various sounds that are coming from out there. They just come in and we hear them. We identify them uh, because we've heard them before and that those seeds of identification are planted in us. Sometimes we don't identify them. Sometimes we don't. We don't know what they are. Um, that's why all of a sudden sounds appear and you recognize and distinguish them, hearing them without making any mistake. Nobody here can claim he or she heard these sounds because you made up your mind beforehand to listen for them. Uh, so in fact, you're listening, this function of mind, you're listening with your original mind. Your original mind, which is completely receptive, completely fluid, just moves towards whatever perception arises very naturally. When you abide in this original mind, you're abiding at the source of all things. What does abiding mean? Uh, it means when you, uh, when you allow it simply to arise, then you are just turning towards this miraculous capacity that uh, you were born with. You know, it starts functioning with your first perceptions. Maybe it actually starts functioning while we're in the womb.
what everyone has from her parents innately is the Buddha mind alone. But since your parents themselves fail to realize this, we become deluded too. And then we display this delusion in raising our own children. As I'm quoting here. Even the nursemaids and babysitters lose their temper. So that people involved in bringing up children display every sort of deluded behavior, including stupidity, selfish desire, and the anger of fighting demons. Fighting demons is one of the is one of the six uh, realms in, in kind of the Buddhist cosmological system. Uh, something happens to us, somebody insults us, somebody confronts us, and we become fighting demons. It just that's part of our habit. Growing up with deluded people surrounding them, children develop a first-rate set of bad habits. <laughs> becoming quite proficient at deluding themselves. Originally, when you're born, you are without delusion. But on account of how you're raised, someone who, someone who is born with Buddha mind is turned into a first-rate unenlightened being. Uh, this is something I'm sure you all know from your experience. Your parents didn't give you any delusions, whatever, when you were born. No bad habits, no selfish desires. So it's like a perceptual tabula rasa. Maybe. That's at least what he's proposing. It's worth it's worth speculating about. But afterwards, once you've come into the world, you picked up all sorts of delusions, which then developed into bad habits so that you couldn't help becoming deluded. That which you didn't pick up from outside is the unborn Buddha mind. And here no delusions exist. So we have this. This is also part of our true nature, our original mind. We have this if we can only find the way to, to turn to it. There's a sentence here in this record. Everyone insists that the way he or she likes to behave is their innate character. So they can't do anything about it. This is one of the most problematic things that I've encountered in talking to people and even in examining myself is this expression, this is my truth. Those are, those are really difficult words because you're doubling down on your identity, which has been formed from outside. And you think it's your truth. 
Uh, but it's really just the construction, and it's a, it's a construction of delusion that we that we cherish uh, because we. We are, we, we are habitually self-centered and we've learned to like it, even though it doesn't serve us very well. So can we, can we tap into this original mind? I like the way Banke talks about Zazen and the practice in his monastery. He says, in Zazen, it's a matter of Buddha mind sitting at rest. So it's just this open awareness that allows yourself to perceive whatever is coming in, including whatever is coming in, in your own thinking mind. It's the Buddha mind doing continuous sasana. Sasana isn't limited to the time you sit. That's why around here is monastery. If people have to do something while they're sitting, they're free to get up and do it. This is really pretty radical for a Zen monastery. Uh, it's up to them, whatever they have a mind to do. Some of them will do Kenyan for a long time, but they can't just continue walking, so then they sit down and do Zazen. They can't be sleeping all the time, and in another place he says, uh, you know, if people in the Zendo want to sleep, fine. We're not going to hit them to make them wake up. You know, it's like, that's the fullness of their Buddha mind unfolding. This is, this is a pretty radical perspective, right? Uh, they can't be sleeping all the time, so they get up. They can't talk constantly, so they stop talking and they do some zazen. They aren't bound by any set rules. Uh, in recent times, however, wherever you go, you find that Zen teachers use old tools when they deal with their pupils. They seem to think that they can't do the job without them. Uh, and so they thrust themselves forward and confront their students with these tools. Uh, these. <laughs> These eyeless bonzes, bonzes is a name for sort of, it's a derogatory name for a monk or a priest. Uh, these eyeless bonzes with their tools in, if they don't have their implements to help them, they aren't help, up to help handling people. What's worse, they tell practitioners that unless they can raise a great ball of doubt and then break through it, there can't be any progress in Zen. Instead of teaching them to live by the unborn mind, 
they start by forcing them to raise this ball of doubt any way they can. People who don't have a doubt are now saddled with one. They've turned their Buddha minds into balls of doubt. It's absolutely wrong. My religion is beyond this. My proof is this. While you face me and listen to me say this, if a sparrow chirps or a crow calls, or a person says something, you, though you sit there without any intent to listen, you'll hear and distinguish each sound. Because it isn't yourself that is doing listening. It isn't self-power. On the other hand, it wouldn't do you any good if you had someone else hear and distinguish the sounds of you for you. So it isn't other power. When you're listening like this in the unborn, each and every sound is. So you don't have to make this vain effort to somehow decontextualize every perception. You know, sometimes we're, we're in some, uh, from some teachers and some books we read, you know, um, Can you find, can you, can you hear something without putting a label on it? Can you have something that you would call pure hearing? I would say no. And that's a kind of radical thing to say. Uh, sometimes we have pure hearing. But mostly because of the whole environment, the social environment, the cultural environment, the physical environment that we live in, we're trained, we receive all of this, and it, it's folded into our perceptual body. So we hear a sound, and Almost instantly, we identify it. What Banke is saying is that entire action is our original mind. Not just this verified, purified, bare perception. This is one of the problems that I have with how mindfulness is being taught. Uh, in the present day, 
it has an emphasis on as if it were just pure decontextualized perception. We don't work like that. Hear that cat? You, you hear it instantly. You know what it is. You might not know what everything is, but that's not because you're getting to the perception before you've put a name on it. So can we accept that as this really, this deeply human capacity that is actually our Buddha mind? Just the original mind. Whatever is arising, and to allow whatever feeling comes up about it and in a sense appreciate it. There's more that I could say, but I think I'm gonna stop there and take, take questions. So if you have any questions or thoughts, here, um, Tony's gonna pass the microphone around. I see Anna, and then I see Mary, and then I see Joel, and anyone out there in Zoomland, you can raise your hands and I'll try to get to you as well. I'm looking at the gallery. Oh. Thank you for this talk. It's very uh, juicy. Uh, it, it reminds me of a moment in the study group that we just had at Hazahara, where we as a group came to the conclusion that the Buddhist response to the concept of original sin is original enlightenment. Yeah. What you thought of, yeah, but but the, the question I have is this question that um, Banke had of finding clarity and polishing the gem sounds very similar to or parallel to Dovin's question about why do we need to practice? And it sounds, would you agree with that? Yeah, generally. I would agree with that. I mean, these, I think that many of our teachers and, and I think actually if we look at ourselves, think back to when you were a child and think back to the things that you wondered about that just filled you with wonder and yet you didn't, you, you couldn't get your mind around it, you couldn't understand it. Huh? <clears throat> In their case, they had, uh, each of them had a cultural context for wrestling with the mystery. And so the mystery may have different manifestations, 
But I think that if we really look inside ourselves, we all, uh, we all been, we all have been aware of the mystery from from very early times. You may have forgotten about it to some degree, but still, if you weren't engaged in that, you would not be here because this is really a stupid activity. You know? But uh, you know, and kind of boring. You know, but uh, it's it's. It's the mystery that draws us. Yeah. Anna? Um, I, yeah. um, I was just like kind of stunned by your uh, inclusion of identification as part of the action of the original mind and that made me think about um well because I, I think i i had encountered a lot of you know mindfulness whatever stuff that's like trying to somehow get you to be with the pure perception which is actually as you were describing that it felt very um not the middle way, it felt very sort of clinging to some absolute that doesn't really exist naturally. But then I was also wondering and thinking about um, like language kind of in general and how this immediate identification is somewhat of a linguistic inherent process. And so um, like, Again, like another maybe idea of Zen that I had or was that, yeah, like emptiness and enlightenment is deconceptual and kind of um, non-linguistic. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering about like the possibility of um, having a middle way within language that is itself, as you said, an activity that's completely of the original mind. And I don't really even know specifically what that would be or look like, but um, yeah. That's great. You're really like swimming in deep waters here. Um, I think that the the circumstances that you're uh, speaking about is really in line with what Dogen was teaching and doing. Uh, and he articulated it in over and over again uh, that unlike other teachers of his time, he did not derogate thinking, that thinking was an activity of Buddha mind. And I think that's, that's what uh, Banke is saying. I want to point you, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading a very interesting new book that came out a month and a half ago. Uh, it's called Rethinking Meditation, Buddhist Meditative Practice in Ancient and Modern Worlds by David McMahon. And if you don't know David McMahon, he's also, he wrote an incredible book called The Matrix.
making of Buddhist modernism. So what he's looking at is, in his book, the way we've shaped, the way meditation is shaped without any judgment, without any value judgment, just meditation the way it was described, say, in the early, in the Satipatthana Sutta, is very different from the way it's described in, say, MBSR. And that our activity is, we have this peculiar activity on the one hand, um, we are, if you really look at the Satipatthana Sutta, there's all this conceptualization. The whole thing, from all four foundations of mindfulness, you're taught to perceive things in a conscious way and move through them step by step. Not to get to some rarefied, pure perception. Uh, so, but the project is interesting because on the one hand, Buddhism uh, historically has been about looking at how we construct reality. And on the other hand, we're being led to deconstruct reality. And we are right in the middle of that dynamic tension, which is wonderful, not so comfortable, but wonderful. So I think that's, uh, I, I really recommend this uh, McMahon's book, Rethinking Meditation. Uh, he's very careful not to make value judgments about one modality of uh, meditation versus another. But if you look at if you look at the modern mindfulness movement, it's about appreciating our life, appreciating our bodies. Uh, and if you look at the ancient monastic tradition, it's like, this life is a trap. We want to get out of it. Our bodies, you know, are disgusting. There's full of all this disgusting stuff, you know, and why would you worship this? So we have these, we really have these dynamic tensions within our practice. But I must say that my, my heart goes to, when I was reading Bunke, that just really speaks to me, you know, and it, it's to appreciate the fluid, to just appreciate it. And it's like, you know, like last week, Ellen was, she was quoting uh, uh, this quote from Suzuki Roshi, which she checked out with Red, where, uh, they were driving, you know, where someone was remarking on the sunset and said it was beautiful. And uh, Suzuki said, uh, yes, and it's a sin to say so. Uh, what's the sin? The sin is actually making, the, making, I mean, internally, we see the sunset, it's like, wow, that's enough. But when we say it, then all of a sudden we're exist we're operating within a social context and we're making the sunset. If I say that's really beautiful, I'm making the sunset about me. And that's where the sin lies. So 
how do we appreciate, how do we just see what's arising, you know, without saying, wow, it's amazing, I can hear the hammering out there, even while I'm trying to think of words and hear. It's like, yeah, but that's just Buddha functioning that has, um, we don't need to make any more of it than just its marvelous functioning. No, oh, thank you. Sorry, I went on so long. Other Joel? So it's not with me in Sojourn where we were talking and I said, uh, okay, let's imagine we're doing Dokson and it's wonderful. And all of a sudden there's World War Three out there, like tremendous noise and bombs and whatever. And he says, oh, that's the unborn reality. Because he used the unborn. And I was kind of stupefied and didn't understand it. And he was very intense. And I brought it to you and you told me to read Bunkai. And, <laughs> and so this, this was wonderful. And it seems to me maybe part of what you're saying would be like both all of the manifestation of World War III and my reaction, this is terrible, or whatever Sojin's reaction is, is in a sense all the unborn, the manifestation. This is it. And I just wanted to share that. And also, it, just to say, it seems to me it's at least that is moving towards that koan about the great Kalpa fire. Like, does it still survive? I mean, in a sense, that's what we were talking about, World War III. Um, and it just seems to. Uh, there's the two answers. Yes, it does, and no, it doesn't. Uh, but I don't know where to go with this, but I thought I'd share that. I think where, to me, well, first of all, World War III, or their, the facsimile of it, is happening. You bet. If you're in South, uh, in Southern Israel and Gaza right now, it's happening. Absolutely. Missiles are raining down. Uh, the question for us, which really tests us, is how do we take responsibility for this? Uh, how do we use all of our resources to be peace and to create peace? And I, I don't have the answer to it. Each of us, uh, as I said to someone a few days ago, each of us has to shine one corner of the world, has to weave one thread into the tapestry at the best we can. It's, it's very difficult. It's very painful. Yes. Yeah. It is World War Three. Yeah. No question. Thank you. Thank I see you. Marley and Katie. And then we'll probably end. Marley? Yes, thank you. Um, I, I really appreciated this. Um, uh, I think my question is, and maybe here's another deep waters, is 
we've we've talked about how how does this reconcile with with some idea of non-conceptualness but but there's also how does this reconcile with the action side of practice with the 16 precepts with the four vows with active working in the world in a compassionate way because i i i imagine you can't just pull away and say oh it's all the functioning of uh of original mind cool thumbs up right thank you so i think if we look at the buddha's early teachings uh it's not there's there's nothing that contradicts what we're saying about original mind but even in what Banke was saying about how we're raised by our parents and how we're raised into delusion well yes original mind is available to us at every minute at every moment uh if we can awaken to it completely great but there are also all of these methodologies and practices uh, and this again goes to the uh the, the satipatthana sutta the four foundations of mindfulness that you see uh that that's all about invoking ways of seeing things and sets of practices that that create an ethical context for an enlightened life there has to be an ethical context to an enlightened life so yeah if you can wake up to it without any of that great most of us need some help some work we need a teacher to mirror us if we will uh, but we need to also uh, be mirrors for ourselves. And all of these, uh, the teachings that have been given us are ways of, of doing that, of allowing us to, so I think that the teachings allow me simply to sit here and uh, appreciate the fluidity of my mind without removing me, as I said a moment ago, from the responsibility for taking care of the world. So, thank you. Katie? Hello. Uh, thank you, Hosan. I have also a practical question, maybe. Um, which is just, I, I really appreciate this inclusiveness of original mind um, and kindness to ourselves and our processes. And also I'm wondering, can you relate it to the Four Noble Truths and the end of suffering? Because I'm very selfishly and unselfishly concerned with endings, my suffering and others. And, you know, very worried about my poor sick kitty right now. And, you know, like, and the, you know, kind of the getting to the crux of it um, 
in those moments when we're really suffering. So I'm just wondering how to connect Banke's teaching with the Four Noble Truths. Well, I want to dig into the, the fourth, into the Eightfold Path. Uh, the Eightfold Path is a map to a good life. It tells us how to live. Uh, it's not, so the, the be all and end all is not necessarily meditation. That's just one of the elements of the, of the Eightfold Path. Um, so can we bring the unself-centered fluidity of our mind to the all the ordinary activities of our life and live in a way that is not mired in delusion, not mired in self-centeredness, and that the Eightfold Path is, is the methodology for that to me. It's a map to it. Uh, and so I do try to rely on that. Uh, and uh, then there's uh, again, if we're going back to the to the foundations of mindfulness, if you look at the fourth foundation, it has you investigate the hindrances, the factors of enlightenment, uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And uh, so the, our fluid mind can turn in any direction. That's the great, the great capacity we have is to uh, is to allow anything to come to our awareness and also consciously to bring it to our awareness. You know, Banke is pointing out one thing uh, and there's a reason why he's doing it that way, but that's not, you know, there are other capacities that the original mind has that um, are not just unconscious attention, but I think they include, and this gets back to what Hannah was saying, they include conscious attention, attention to our words, attention to our action. And the amazing function of mind is that we have the ability to, to do all of these things. That's what I would say. That's maybe a good place to end. Thank you.